Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Green. As we wind down the year, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. It was a record-setting year at Art Tactic. We had over 100,000 downloads of the podcast, which is just really incredible. I remember when we first started the podcast in 2009, the majority of our guests had never even heard of a podcast, and we would have to explain to them what it was and the concept, and eventually we were able to persuade some of them to come on. Anyways, podcasts have come so far since then in the last decade, and we know there's so many of them out there, and we appreciate that you continue to support this podcast and listen to it. And at the end of the day, what drives us is being able to have interesting conversations with guests about the art market and the contemporary art world, and we love that we're able to share those conversations with you. And on behalf of everyone at Art Tactic, I want to wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year. In this week's episode of the podcast, it's one of our favorites. It's the end of the year episode. We're joined by Judd Tolley, veteran art market reporter and frequent contributor to Art News. Judd joins us to chat about 2019. We look at the biggest storylines of the year, which artists were the biggest winners. And Judd even makes a few bold predictions for 2020. So thanks so much again for listening and supporting the podcast, and we hope you enjoy this end-of-the-year episode on the Art Tactic Podcast with Judd Tolley. Judd, thanks so much for joining us for this end-of-the-year episode. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Adam. So to start things off, Judd, in your mind, what were a few of the top storylines of the past year in the art market? One certainly would be, at least if we're looking at the auction side, the uh, sale of uh, Sotheby's, the venerable auction house that's been trading on the New York Stock Exchange for decades, um, sold to a French-Israeli businessman who has uh, taken the firm private um, in a deal that's valued at $3.7 billion. Already there are there have been initiated with the new CEO various changes, which I think have generally terrified most of the seasoned um, experts and employees at Sotheby's. Yeah, I think that's really interesting how Sotheby's went from publicly traded to private. And maybe we haven't seen how that's impacted their business model and how it might impact the makeup of auctions and consigners and buyers, essentially how it may impact art collectors. But we have already seen, right, um, how it's had a big impact on specialists and other people internally there at the auction house. Yes, and I think also one obvious um, direction they're taking very seriously is so-called in the luxury sector, whatever that means. And Sotheby's historically, since its roots in, you know, Georgian era England has been, you know, the sale of of things, you know, art, decorative, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, the driven by uh, death, divorce, and debt. <clears throat> so anyway, we'll see what happens. And sort of parallel to that, you know, up until, I don't know, the last 12 months, 18 months, the just huge um, 
increase in art fairs globally and the biggest driver of that and the total uh, top dog in that field would be the Basel, Switzerland-based MCH group. And they've experienced lots of trouble in the last year um, based in part on the general collapse of one sector of the luxury watch market, which kind of fell victim to, for lack of, you know, the, um, um, the Apple watch and just millennials, you know, pretty much going by what time is it on their cell phones? Um, not to say that the classic or vintage watch market, that's doing spectacularly well. But I think what I noticed most in 2019, and I would say almost across the board, a lessening of the very, very top artworks that typically come to auction. And while there were some spectacular examples, for instance, I mean, just to, you know, click off a couple of uh, items in the Impressionist modern field, which until maybe 10 years ago was the top category, it's been wildly overtaken by post-war and contemporary art, but there was a rare and just amazingly beautiful Claude Monet grain stacks uh, painting that came up at Sotheby's in um, last month that sold for a record $110 million. And to my knowledge, that was the only hundred million dollar work that sold during the year of course we have um jeff coon's stainless steel rabbit that made 91 million at, at christie's and that was from the esteemed collection of si newhouse that was in may other than though you know and then there were some great examples there was a great rauschenberg fantastic ed Rocher painting there was a Andy Warhol, Double Elvis, that sold, all of those sold um, at Christie's um, north of $50 million in the last year. Those are really pop art, 60s, absolutely undeniable classics. Looking a bit, you know, in a bit broader field, um, one of the most interesting sales uh, and it just shows the incredible marketing skills of the auction houses. But it was at <clears throat> Sotheby's London in October. And this sale took place literally before the so-called deadline for Brexit was appearing. And they offered uh, Banksy's devolved parliament, which sold for a record close to 10 million pounds, around $12 million dollars. Sotheby's staged the painting, which is huge, billboard scaled almost, featuring instead of parliamentarians, were all chimpanzees. And um, very funny, very funny and cutting painting from 2009. Sotheby's installed for the exhibition before the sale. <clears throat> uh, they had security guards, they had a metal detector that you had to walk through. They made these faux benches uh, resembling the kinds that are in the House of Commons. Anyway, just 
they went all out and they made a spectacular result. Some crazy prices. I mean, you could say a Banksy is a crazy price if it made 10 million pounds. But in Hong Kong, which is a sector, the Asian art market is just absolutely gargantuan. It takes at least a third of the art sales at auction um, because of all the wealth being developed in Asia, not just China. <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> Hong Kong has become a critical sales uh, center, just like New York, uh, just like London. You have this <clears throat> artist like Cause with his Cause album, which was a riff on the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But instead of uh, those figures, he used uh, cartoon figures from The Simpsons. And that sold for over $14 million. In the same breath, still talking about Hong Kong, that sale was at Sotheby's. There was a um, Yoshitoma Nara painting that made something like $24 And that was of his classic uh, kind of little girl figure. The previous record for Nara, which was set at Christie's maybe six months before, was something like four and a half million. So you've got these crazy gyrations that just show the amazing amount of uh, wealth that can be dropped, you know, in like five minutes. Um, so that said, with those kind of, you know, the Monet uh, grain stacks or this Cezanne tabletop landscape that sold at Christie's, uh, you know, you would say, hey, the art market's doing great, but it, it's not as great. And the caliber of the works show, I believe, from, you know, where I stand or from my perch that the owners of these fantastic works um, are holding on to them because they're, you know, not sure this is the time to sell them. I remember being in the sale room in London for that Banksy auction. It was just really incredible. One of my favorite moments of 2019. Bids were flying left and right at really high values for Banksy. People in the sale room wondering who are these people bidding at these price points for Banksy. It was really a fun time. Something else I wanted to ask you, when we look back on 2019, who would you say are some of the biggest winners of the year when you think about artists and their markets or maybe some of their accomplishments? I would say, I mean, and this is something that I've been looking at for a while, not that I'm categorizing it, but if there was any flag that stands out in the last year has been the literally meteoric rise of African-American artists in the primary market, in the secondary market, everywhere you look, in large part due to fantastic uh, gallery shows. You have, I mean, museum scale, uh, the David Hammonds exhibition in L.A. at Hauser and Wirth. There was Alma Thomas at Mnuchin Gallery. They also did a show of Ed Clark. Henry Taylor, whose show is just about to close at Blum and Poe here in New York. It just sort of goes on and on. The Betty Saar exhibition that's now at the new, newly refigured MoMA and um, the 
Charles White, who was a um, seminal figure, uh, a teacher at the Otis Art Institute in Los Angeles. He's from Chicago. And his retrospective um, that started at the Art Institute of Chicago and then went to MoMA and then LACMA is a complete game changer, at least in his, you know, I mean, he passed away years ago, but now his market is sort of, you see him for the first time in an evening sale, or his work, I should say, in an evening sale. Charles White, by the way, was also the teacher of Kerry James Marshall, another current star of that, and, and David Hammonds as well. So that, I would say, for me, is one of the strongest examples. Um, and also other museum shows, while we're on the topic, there was an exhibition at the Guggenheim called Basquiat's Defacement, um, which was curated by, I'm going to butcher her name, sorry, uh, Shadira Labouvier. Um, La and that was an exhibition around the graffiti street artist Michael Stewart, who was um, killed by, uh, in New York City in 1984 uh, for spray painting something by the uh, New York City uh, subway police. At the time, they were separate from regular New York City cops. Anyway, <clears throat> that exhibition had amazing work by not just Basquiat, but Keith Haring, David Hammonds. Um, it was a huge event among young artists. Um, George Kondo uh, did a painting based on it, uh, on this young man's death who was, you know, in his 20s when he was killed. If another, if you're looking at trends or artists who seem to stand out, uh, one Another artist would be, uh, it, she was, um, it's ongoing now at the Perez Museum in Miami, a mid-career survey of Teresita Fernandez. I think that also shows another side. Women are coming out stronger and stronger, and you can't really find a better exhibition uh, on view right now than the uh, Via Selman's retrospective at Met Breuer. Her work is uh, extraordinary, and to be able to see such a grouping of it um, is pretty, pretty impressive. And then just, I don't know, I'm throwing out a lot of things, but, uh, and I haven't had the chance to see it, but another artist who fits into this grouping um, who passed away some years ago, Robert Cole Scott, is the subject of an exhibition <clears throat> in Cincinnati that the uh, seasoned curator Lowry Sims organized. And he's a major, major figure in, in that um, world because, I mean, frankly, the art market has been um, segregated for many, many decades. And it's only now, I mean, maybe that's an odd way to put it, but it's breaking out. You can go to MoMA now and you see uh, a painting by Hardina Pindell uh, in the same room as a Picasso. I mean, everybody's, you know, refiguring what's what in the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, you mentioned a lot of really important and big names. And I think one of the biggest driving factors of this is not just 
collector's interest in these artists, but also museum support and museum exhibitions and museum acquisitions of these artists who were often overlooked by these museums for several decades, and now they're really trying to play catch-up, and they've been able to put on some fantastic exhibitions over the last few years. I would say it's somewhat similar to another, if you want to call it development, in the last couple of years, but there's been an an increased attention to artists' estates and some of the mega galleries from Gagosian to Hauser and Wirth, Pace, have been vying for artists' estates and even some artists who are not particularly that well-known or in the starship of, um, you know, the likes of, say, a Willem de Kooning, although there is no gallery representation of that artist, I think drives that desire by galleries. And I didn't include uh, David Zwerner, which certainly is also part of that charge, is the need for material and the need to fill these, you know, multi-exhibition spaces, um, brick-and-mortar ones, when the galleries have places all over the world, not to mention, you know, doing 10 or 12 art fairs a year. There's a uh, terrific need for, for lack of a better word, product. And uh, I think that's something that is uh, kind of wearing out the art market. I mean, the fatigue of living artists being, you know, told, well, we need some new work for freeze in London in October. And then, you know, Miami's coming up and don't forget uh, freeze at Randall's Island. And I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's very difficult to uh, produce work Uh, I mean, in these various venues, and that's why you're seeing, or I've seen, and you've probably noticed as well, um, these kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of these artworks are on a safari. They're going from, you know, Tefaf Spring to Art Basel um, when they don't sell. So I think there's, you know, generally this sort of uh, corporatization that's been going on that I think is not so great. And when you were asking me earlier about some of the artists that have really stood out in the last year, it made me think of some of the artists who aren't doing all that well, who were huge stars. And um, I'm not saying they're not great artists anymore, but some of their markets like Rudolf Stingel, um, you could say that in a certain way about Christopher Wool. You can even say that about greatest living artists today, Gerhard Richter, at least price wise. And what you see at auction, a bit of a harder sell that could be just from overexposure. It's a big uh, melting pot. You mentioned artists such as Richter, Stingel, Wool. These are all abstract artists. And as you said, their markets have softened over the past year. What trends in art aesthetically would you say defined the year? I would say it was fairly evident to me um, in Miami just um, a few weeks ago that the um, there's a tremendous amount of figurative painting in the stand, meaning the booths and the exhibitions. And I think part of that, it seems almost 
not being sarcastic, but it's kind of almost like a dumbing down aesthetically or the kind of current taste or the current whatever bourgeoisie taste is um, not as sophisticated as it might have been some time ago, perhaps due to the change of, you know, people becoming younger collectors just out of the gate and buying things that are pretty obvious. And I'm not referring, because God knows thousands of people have done it already, to uh, Maurizio Catalan's banana work of art at Art Basel Miami Beach. But I, I would say that at the primary market level, if, if there was any kind of trend, I would say it is just so diffuse, multimedia, ultra high-tech, digitally influenced artists are becoming more like filmmakers in a way, uh, in terms of a moving image and uh, or you know sculpture production on that primary market level i think it's incredibly sophisticated and perhaps even you know cutting edge but in the more commercial avenues i think it's something that still looks good over the living room couch and as an art market reporter you're traveling around the world to different art capitals seeing so many museum and gallery exhibitions what would you say was the best exhibition you saw in 2019? A certain contender for one of the great shows of of the year um, in any uh, venue, but it took place at the Guggenheim, was the uh, Hilma of Klint Paintings of the Future exhibition that was the first exhibition of her work of these quite radical abstract paintings that were done uh, in Sweden in the early 20th century in 1906 to, uh, I think it was 1917 um, or something like that. And um, her early work would have literally predated that of uh, Kandinsky, Malevich, and Mondrian, who were these uh, giants who were credited with sort of inventing abstraction and hers was uh, a work um, spiritually infused and she was quite uh, an ascetic and had um, her works were literally not allowed to leave uh, Stockholm for many years so this was I would say revelation of some artists that you know, a few experts knew about, um, but had never really seen. That uh, was the showstopper for me. And lastly, as we head into 2020, Judd, we were wondering if you could give us one or two bold predictions for the art market in 2020. We're not going to track if they end up becoming true or not, but if you can share one or two bold predictions, we'd love to hear them. It's all going to collapse because of Inigo Philbrick's scam. <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, I really take a close look at the direction Sotheby's is going to take in the next 12 months, because I believe the auction business is uh, under great strain because of the gigantic costs of just 
chasing wealthy people around 24 seven, um, around the world and, uh, catering to their, you know, needs. And I think Sotheby's is going to break out and become something very different from just an auction house. And by that, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be boutique. I don't know if it's going to be some kind of, uh, digital expansion and don't forget that decades ago when Sotheby's was on its knees and privately owned in England they even put out this is before the Surgeon General's report but they even put out a a cigarette a Sotheby's cigarette to try to you know sort of increase the brand really yeah mhm yeah and you can probably find an advertisement uh, about it on eBay I think that is, you know, not so much the canary in the coal mine, but I do believe the way the art market, the global art market has been working and growing and accelerating, um, and that includes art fairs, are under severe pressure, and I think changes are afoot. Um, and just as a footnote, uh, no pun intended, but just. Uh, as a footnote today, I got an email from um, uh, Christie's uh, talking about uh, an effort, a corporate effort to cut down on paper that would include one of their most expensive, the you know, the auction catalog. Uh, not that they're eliminating them, but I think that's another area that's going to see uh, considerable shrinkage. Going back to my half uh, snarky remark about Inigo Philbrick, you know, before that Ezra Chueki, before that Nodler Gallery, uh, Rothko Fakes, I think the art world really has to uh, have uh, not better manners, but um, a more, um, I don't think it's possible actually, but, you know, a more sort of business oriented approach to these transactions that literally are still a handshake or some kind of uh, email exchange. Anyway, I am confident that there are lots of great emerging artists out there and hopefully they'll be coming to galleries and to recognition. And um, that part is um, my hope. I like it, ending on a happy note. Judd, thanks so much again for coming on the podcast and helping us review the year 2019 in the art market. There were some incredible storylines, and we appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights and digging into them with us. We want to wish you a happy holidays and a happy new year. And if our listeners want to follow you on social media, which I definitely recommend they do, where can they find you? Oh, let's see. Where am I? Well, um, I'm... Uh, um Instagram, Judd Tully, and um, uh, JuddTully.net, um, occasionally on Twitter, um, and you can probably find articles uh, on Art News. Judd, thanks so much again. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Have a great holiday. You too.